I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey there, thanks so much for listening. This is a super fun and timely conversation I had this week with Noah Horowitz. You can tell that he references the election and the fact that we were waiting and the uncertainty that we spent most of last week with. We talk about that in relationship to art and actually 2020 in general. So I think you're really gonna enjoy it. We'll get there in just a minute. I don't know about you, but I get most of my things done in the spaces between doing everything else. And I gravitate towards the things I can handle from an app on my phone. Kelly Klee Private Client Insurance believes that people with more to lose need better protection for what they cherish. I have insured not only my cars and homes with them, but also my personal art collection. They have an incredibly well-designed app that's not only aesthetic, but the user interface is superb. I can see each work in my collection and its currently insured value, as well as seamlessly and easily, literally from my phone, add new things as they're acquired. Insurance to me sounds like kind of a boring thing to talk about, but particularly in these uncertain times, I sleep way better at night knowing that the things I love are protected. So check out their website, kellyclee.com backslash Heidi. That's K-E-L-L-Y-K-L-E-E dot com backslash Heidi. And they will make a $50 donation to Artadia, an art charity I've recommended for each qualified referral. These details are included in the show notes. Is there a piece of jewelry you would like to create? I'm excited to tell you about Best & Co., which offers a smarter way to acquire luxury jewelry. I wanted to create signet rings for each member of my family. Best & Co. worked with me to create a custom design and fabricate the rings. We all love them. The rings are a daily and physical reminder of our connection, even when we're not together. Whether you want to reuse sentimental stones from a family heirloom or create a piece that you've been dreaming about, Best & Co. can help you create it and their effective and efficient business model allows them to provide significant savings to their clients. Clients regularly save as much as 30% and frequently more when compared with purchasing comparable high-quality pieces from traditional luxury jewelry retailers. So check out their website, www.bestincoaspen.com and use discount code HEIDI2020 to receive 5% off of any item on Best & Co's website. I was just looking at it today and honestly, there are a ton of things that I would like to use that discount code for. Also, if you're interested in creating a custom piece, you can email custom at bestincoaspen.com. That's B-E-S-T-A-N-D-C-O-A-S-P-E-N.com. And mention that you heard about Best & Co on my podcast to receive the special discount. Noah Horowitz is Director Americas for Art Basel since 2015. 
He is based in New York and is in charge of Art Basel's show in Miami Beach. He holds a PhD in art history from the Courtauld Institute of Art in London. And his doctoral thesis, which was titled Art of the Deal, Contemporary Art in a Global Financial Market, was published by the Princeton University Press in 2011. Previous to the Art Basel position, he was the managing director of the Armory Show in New York from 2011 until 2015. And prior to that, in 2009, he became the director of the VIP Art Fair, the first ever virtual international art fair. He and I discuss the intimacies of Zoom, living with a blanket of uncertainty, positive intelligence, the first online art fair, the rhythm and consistency of the art world calendar, details of the art market report, what is good and great in the contemporary art world, and art in particular, being cultural explorers and speaking the global language of art, and the continuous and unchanging ability to be moved by art. I am looking, uh, Noah, I mean, our listeners can't see this, obviously, but I'm looking at all these um, beautiful green plants behind you. (laughs) And I live with houseplants also. Um, I feel like it kind of diminishes them by referring to them as houseplants somehow, but uh, I love them. And I wonder if that's something that's key in your space also, or Uh, if that's just where you're sitting. It, it, well, it is where I'm sitting, Heidi, but it is key in our space. We, uh, we have, I have, I have developed uh, an unknown green thumb. Uh, I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, allow me to be perfectly clear uh, with plants, many of which, by the way, have been acquired cheaply at IKEA. Um, but <laughs> IKEA plants have a certain fortitude that is impressive if you water and give them light. Uh, and the, the, the green, the green thumb is sort of really matured under lockdown during COVID. Um, so I'm sitting in my bedroom here, uh, with a a little plant and some, we have a beautiful magnolia in our, our backyard in Brooklyn. So that's, uh, sort of kept us going, uh, over the last month. Um, (laughs) very good observation. Nice. I love that. I, I think it's been so interesting, and I've talked about this with a few people who have been on the podcast about this uh, new intimacy. You know, even though it's it's telephonic and it's distanced, it's somehow also simultaneously more intimate because oftentimes uh, you're ending up, you know, talking with someone and, and they're in their bedroom um, or you know some other kind of space in their house where. You know, even if you're friends uh, and have been friends for a while, you may not have have been in that in that same kind of um, yeah intimate setting with them. Oh, totally. I mean, uh, I think there's there's that, but it's also when you sort of crack the shell a little bit, just the the amount of focus time that you spend with people as well, right? Both on on Zoom, uh, but also to the extent that one is seeing people selectively in the real now, you know, there are people, certainly many people in my professional life, for example, that in a, in a normal time, you know, it's hard to get 15 minutes with them. All of a sudden now you can sit down and, and, you know, whether it's in their gallery or, you know, over a coffee somewhere, 
socially distance and outdoors, but you can, you know, you get an hour, two hours with people that, that, you know, were very tough to pin down. And so I think there's a real quality to that and be a bit more selective um, while still being very wide reaching. Um, and then, you know, in the Zoom space, uh, you know, it, it never ceases to amaze the, the curiosities you see and, and what you learn about people, um, you know, based on sort of how they present themselves to the world through this kind of strange technology. <laughs> Yeah. Why do you think that people have more time now? I mean, it, 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 do you think it's mostly the fact that like travel is reduced or because I, I'm noticing the same thing too, you know, you're right. Like why would someone who you could only get 15 minutes with before suddenly have an hour or two hours now? I mean, I think it's a categoric sort of reshifting of one's schedule and priorities. I mean, I can speak just from personal experience. I mean, I travel for for Art Basel, you know, I don't know, 40 to 50% of the time. Um, my wife is is Danish, so we're in, 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 in Denmark a lot anyway. So we have personal travels also. Um, we live in Brooklyn. Our office is in Manhattan. Um that's a 45 minute commute each way. So that's an hour and a half each day when I'm in New York that we get to realign to some other use, whether it's exercise, whether it's meditation, whether it's, it's having more time for more focus calls, et cetera. You know, the, the other side of that is, you know, we've also, if you're not careful, work spills into life and life back into work in a really intoxicating way. Uh, you know, my calls to Europe this morning started at 7 a.m., right? That's not a nine to five any longer, and they'll easily go. Um, I was on the phone to Asia last night till about 10 or 11 in the evening. Um, and so that, you know, that spillover creates this much more sort of blurry blend of your personal space and your professional space. And I think we all um, you know, need to be more careful with it. I, it. It's interesting. I think since September kind of kicked the season off again, I've been much better about demarcating that. Whereas in the spring, uh, also with two young kids, it was just like a total blur. And really, I, I don't think at the time I realized the toll it took on me and, and my wife and, and just like our sort of family setup. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we had a good summer and, and since we've kind of come back, like as a family unit, uh, we've been like really sort of in sync, even as, you know, the kind of COVID crisis has continued to rear its, 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 its face, which is not all together bad, but it does create this sort of like deep level of sort of uncertainty, you know, sort of a blanket of uncertainty, which makes you know, more normalized decision paths and strategic directions. And for a business like ours, which is, you know, sort of normalized around these week-long events, really challenging to plan. And, and that just the sheer level of uncertainty, right? I mean, it's often said that uncertainty is, is worse than bad news. At least with bad news, you've got your bad news and then you can recalibrate, whereas a blanket of uncertainty is, is really challenging. And I think it, it sort of pervades everything these days. It's fascinating. So there's a guy named Corey Muscara, who is a professor at Penn and studies meditation and came at meditation from sort of a science and business background, as far as I can tell. And he just, for me, is really simple in the way that he 
communicates really profound things. And he was talking about meditation and uncertainty this morning and how meditation doesn't actually help with uncertainty. In fact, uh, it makes you even more aware of how uncertain everything is. And it somehow offers the opportunity to kind of sit in a place of more comfort or calm with that uncertainty. Yeah. I mean, I <laughs> sounds about right. I have to say I don't meditate, uh, but I started this, this course, this sort of digital course called positive intelligence led by this guy, Shirzad Shamin is a guy at Stanford. Um, he's done a lot of CEO coaching, but also sort of just like lifestyle coaching. And it's, it's quite transformational. I played tennis competitively as a kid and I got to a stage at which, you know, the, the general tennis logic is like, you know, all right, maybe Federer and the dollar, a bit of an aside, right? But like the top 500 players in the world are kind of all the same, like in their athletic ability. But what really sort of separates the top 10 or top 20 from the rest is their, is their mental strength, right? Um, and that was a lesson I had as, uh, as a kid. And But this, you know, Shirzad's whole, this positive intelligence program, which is sort of a six week course. But then I think if you sort of really apply it, it becomes a, a lifelong thing is, has been really transformative. And it's really just about sort of creating your your, your mental muscle to kind of push back, uh, in a way around all these negative pressures and around issues around uncertainty and, and kind of gives you interesting insights and tips to how to, to kind of steer your way through that and make, good of that uh you know even the election right now like it can be it, it's very easy to go down a negative pathway with so many unknowns but you know if if you can kind of train your head to think not so much about just all the negative pathways but about good outcomes whatever political party you support that can come through a process like this it's quite transformative and it really allows you to kind of somehow um take a bit of pause and then resurface with you know much more positive and focused um outlook on things and i think there, there are really extraordinarily impressive lessons that you can glean from that um in life and in work of course are there tactical strategies that you could share from from what you've learned yeah, well, it's all about the whole program is built around this the this kind of thing you call the positive intelligence quotient, which is basically like how you kind of just get your brain, you, you, you're training your brain as if you're going to a gym to kind of push back against these pressures. And the, the stronger you get at doing that, the quicker you can reset your mental habitudes. So he has a whole program of just like little things, just like, you know, looking at something or, you know, so, but it's just like they're 10 second exercises or just tactical things and, and just tricks that you can do to get your brain to, to, to go from a sort of glass half full or a glass half empty state to a glass half full state. And sort of just to, to lower you to, to cool your jets. I mean, I had a panic attack like 20 years ago. And, um, the lesson I learned there was that sort of square breathing routine where you sort of breathe in for five seconds and hold it and then breathe out for five seconds. And I've never had a panic attack since then. Cause I learned through just sort of sheer force of, you know, like my brain to understand and to see clearly when something was developing and then to externalize it, 
uh, as that issue. And that's basically what square breathing teaches you. And, and this guy's whole, you know, philosophy is to kind of see that in every sort of daily interaction and just to learn how to like identify these triggers and to kind of cool your jets a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm not a master of any of this by any sense, but it's been, it's, it's one of these things that I think could easily be written off as sort of cultish or kooky. Um, but I've, I've sort of bought into it pretty seriously. And, and, and as to get back to what we were just discussing earlier, like as life bleeds into work and work back into life in this, this sort of work from home zoom environment where, where it's, it's tough to get clear boundaries. I think being able to kind of take that pause and identify these, these triggers, uh, is, is amazingly like powerful. Super fascinating. And, you know, obviously we're all breathing all the time, um, but we're mostly doing it without any sort of consciousness. And I have spoken a lot about like my morning routine and a lot of people talk about their morning routines now. And I have just added something to my morning routine, which is a cold plunge. And mostly because I now have a pool that's not heated and it's cold. And, um, and the first day that I did it, I'm now four days into like a self-imposed, you know, 30 day challenge. Um, the first day I just went in and, you know, it was freezing and I got right back out. And then the second day I did that box breathing, you know, three box breaths before I got in and then two box breaths, you know, in there. And then the next day I was able to stay in for another one, but doing that breathing before then experiencing something that you know is going to not feel very good uh, gives you like this additional fortitude physically and mentally, which is phenomenal. So. Totally. Yeah. I wish I had a cold thing to plunge into, unfortunately in Brooklyn, unless you jump into the lake in prospect park, which I think is, is probably not, not advisable uh, or into the East river, which is definitely not advisable. <laughs> uh, it, it's a little tougher. Having said that, I mean, I, I've, you know, I used to play a lot of sport and I basically isolated that down, you know, since we had kids to jogging, you know, uh, and, uh, I don't know, I probably run 30 plus miles a week now and, and just being near the park here and just getting up early, uh, and doing that for 45 minutes to an hour each day. Uh, and when I was in Europe in the summer, uh, you know, which was amazing, um, you know, just like jumping in the water after is just so clarifying, uh, and really, and you, we all have that time. I get into big arguments with people all the time. You say, well, da, 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 and you know, it's like my work day starts too early, but it's, that's, that's just not true. And I think you have to somewhere, whether it's, I'm a morning person with that stuff. So I, I do it early, but like too. you, yeah. you've got to find that time. Um, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be going in cold water or running, but you, you've got to have something that kind of keeps you ticking personally that, that, that sort of sits outside of, um, you know, the, the sort of normal work life routine. Totally agree. So let's talk about the art world and the uncertainty, particularly around the area in which you sit. Tell our listeners when you joined Art Basel, you know, what your role is and sort of set this stage, if you would, about what it was like, uh, in case people don't know, and then what it's like now. 
Sure. So I'm Director Americas for Art Basel. Art Basel, for those that don't know what Art Basel is, is the you know the largest organizer of, of art fairs, uh, you know, specializing in modern contemporary art dating from 1900 uh, to present in the world. We've been around. I mean, this is uh, our 50th anniversary here, right? Which is uh, quite extraordinary and, and, you know, not the year that we thought we'd be celebrating 50 years within, but, you know, we have events, uh, in Basel, Switzerland, uh, Miami, uh, since 2002 and, and then in Hong Kong, uh, we work, uh, with over 500 galleries annually that do at least one of our shows, you know, showing in, in those shows, uh, you know, thousands upon thousands of, of work. Um, uh, again, spanning, you know, things made literally straight from the studio to, to the early 20th century. Um, you know, we have an audience in a normal year of, of over 250,000 people that come to our shows, but 80,000, give or take, at each of the, the three shows, um, you know, and, and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, are, are spent, you know, across them, you know, in the lead in, during, and, and, and certainly after, at the show. So it's an extraordinary platform. Um, I joined uh, five and a half years ago after having uh, been the director of the Armory Show, which is the, the art fair in New York for about four years before that. And, and actually prior to that, I, I got my jump in the art fair space um, in 2010, so about 10 years ago now, setting up uh, VIP art fair, which is the first digital art fair of its kind. So that's kind of come full circle as we are now in a digital environment. I'm not even sure you knew that, Heidi. <laughs> Um, I, didn't, so, I didn't actually know that. That's interesting. <laughs> um, so that was that was a business that that Jim Cohan and his wife Jane uh, and, and Jim is a longstanding gallerist that works with many phenomenal artists. And and already at the time, he and, and his wife and their business partners identified this this um, a reality in the market in which. Uh, uh, you know, throughout the course of the 2000s, just a lot of work was selling sight unseen by JPEG and otherwise uh, without needing to see work in person. And so it was built on this conceit, even though, of course, the, the, the end of the industry and this so much values in person interactions and, and seeing things in the real, but it was built on the conceit that actually a lot of business was already done at a remove anyway. And why not try to scale that online? And so, you know, Jim hired me and they had a digital team that built it up. And I, I got, you know, sort of learned the chop, so to speak, or, you know, traveling with Jim and speaking to his colleagues who were all, you know, fellow gallerists and understanding what their priorities were, what they think about, what defines success, um, you know, what they want to do. And in the end, gallerists, they want to meet people and they want to sell things, but lead generation and that you know, that as a fundamental business priority is, is really fundamental. So I, I learned a lot of that through Jim and, and 10 years on now we're in this sort of COVID world in which Art Basel and all other major art fairs, all galleries, all the auction houses are streaming everything we do online. Um, I, I can come back to that momentarily, but I think when I joined Art Basel five and a half years ago, we we're a global organization that up hundred people full-time and, and a lot of agencies and architects and so on and so forth of, you know, 30 some VIP representatives that represent us in regional markets around the world. So we're a large network and, um, you know, there's this very sort of tight staccato of production. So you sort of start the year and, and Hong Kong's in March and we do all our 
meetings for setting the stage for what Miami is already in the beginning of the year. And then you have Basel in June. And then, you know, for the business that I lead within Art Basel, which is I'm, I'm the head of Art Basel Miami, but also the sort of key stakeholder and relationship person for Art Basel. Um, you know, in North and South America. So you're on, you know, on, on an ongoing basis, you're planning the show, but then also plotting strategically what we do, how we interact with clients around the world. And um, the last time I was in Basel this year was at the end of January each year, we have a strategic summit. Um, and I'll never forget, um, you know, it was like the end of the week before, I think I was flying out on a Sunday and, and, you know, at that time, I mean, Mark Spiegler is, is my boss and, and the global head of Art Basel was um, with Adeline Oyes, our director of Asia, and they had just done sort of uh, a, a week together in, in Hong Kong and there's the fair in Taipei as well at the time. And COVID was beginning to be discussed on a global level and we realized sort of right as I got to Basel's, I think it was that last week of January that things were going to, you know, that something was going to change. And I ended up extending my stay in Switzerland by a week as we plotted through what we should do with the Hong Kong fair, which we ended up canceling in early February. And when we did that, um, you know, if you go back into the timeline, I mean, the cancellation of Art Basel Hong Kong was really due to the, you know, due to COVID and the effects of COVID and just all the logistical complexities of how we could set up and run a fair in Hong Kong in the face of this, which essentially became impossible to do. We just logistically couldn't do it, um, um, notwithstanding, you know, how our clients felt about it, um, you know, it was, it was an extraordinary thing. So that really kicked off, you know, essentially a 10 10 month cycle until where we are now where the, the world is transformed um, totally. Um, and so already we had been building a digital pipeline that we were going to launch in Hong Kong in March, um, really as a sort of sort of tentacle from Art Basel Hong Kong um, and ended up sort of flipping a switch in early February to Obviously, we couldn't do the fair in person, but then we gave access to all galleries that were part of the Hong Kong show, uh, access to this digital platform and did this online viewing room, you know, where each of the galleries um, could, could put, I think it was a 10 or so works online. And we brought together a digital audience that we then replicated um, in June for, for the cancellation of our Basel show. Uh, and, 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 and we'll be doing again in December in a different sort of more elevated way, uh, around the, the normal dates of Art Basel, Miami beach. When you reference the calendar and the number of people that would come to the fairs, you know, the, the Art Basel calendar really, for me, not just me, but, you know, was the anchor of, of my calendar for the year. You know, I would know that I was going to be, I, I mean, Hong Kong wasn't on my schedule, but, you know, I would be in Basel in June and I would be in Miami in December, period, full stop. Uh, I mean, for a decade, uh, you know, or more. And that, it, to just have that, like, be wiped off the schedule. And then, of course, there were, you know, I mean, the art world calendar was so consistent. I mean, you would know you were in Venice every two years. You were in San Paulo. You were in um, these places. You could plan a wedding, you know, two years from now. You could plan like your kid's 
bar mitzvah. You know, I mean, like you knew when you would be available and when you couldn't be because the dates were so consistent. And I thought that was really one of the interesting things about, I mean, the Hong Kong decision seemed as if it was made like decisively and clearly and definitively. You know, the decision around Basel um, and the fact that it moved originally from, you know, June to September and then it went online and then online it split between um, works made in 2020 and then, you know, works made. Um, I, I'm not sure what the other distinction was, but, um, you know, kind of splitting that. Um, I'm curious how those um, different kind of mutations have have worked um, or not worked candidly, um, having experienced some of them myself and how what you've learned from there, you're going to apply for Miami, which is, you know, really yeah. you know, your specific purview. Yeah, well, I, there's a lot of questions in there, and there are a lot of really good questions. <laughs> I, I'd say let's let, let's get down to the timing of the calendar, right? Because I think yep. this is a, okay. a, a critical thing. I mean, you know, it's very challenging strategically. Like we're leading a, a large global business, um, you know, that in the end is responsible not just probably for hundreds, but for you know hundreds of millions, but probably in the in the billions of dollars of sales in terms of impact, right? I mean, we've started. Yes. Um, you know, which is a project that that I, I originated and I sort of lead internally that this art market report that we do in partnership with UBS with with Claire McAndrews, an art market economist. And uh, I, pre art fair time, I you know I wrote my PhD and that sort of bridged the worlds of art and economics. And Claire was somebody that I had met through those circles, and and her research is is you know phenomenal. And you know she's found in the research that we you know now published annually with UBS. Um, you know, that, that art fairs account for around 45% of sales. And that's grossed up considerably in the time frame that she's been tracking from around 30%. So our businesses collectively, that's not just Art Basel, of course, but Art Basel's three fair platform is probably the, the largest, certainly for many of the galleries that are there. And so you have this these these events that happen in certain times a year and and Basel in June and Miami in December to really close out those seasons are are staples. Uh, when we initially postponed Basel from June to September, you know we were doing our best at the time in a, in a, in a horribly tricky environment to try to create the best possible chance for for doing something in the calendar year. Um, you know, there was an awareness that that may not be a global thing at that stage if we couldn't get collectors and gallerists from Asia or America to Europe, but that perhaps we could hold out hope that at least it could be a European fair. In the end, it couldn't be anything due to restrictions imposed within the Swiss environment uh, and a lot of other factors that, that that mitigated against that, but principally basically due to the fact that we just, again, due to limitations on large scale events, could not host that. Um, to your question about, uh, so, so I guess one thing in relation to that is the importance of the timing. I mean, timing is key in our industry. The auctions, obviously, as you're aware of as well, follow closely in sync with that. So in, you know, Art Basel in June follows a few weeks after the big May auctions, which are the, the you know, the mod and contemporary sales in New York. And then similarly in December with Art Basel Miami, 
we follow a few weeks after the you know the the November sales. You have October in London, and then the, the big November sales in New York. So that is you know that that timing is critical because in the end, our industry is predicated on pretty fundamentally limited supply. Um, uh, certainly at the higher end of the market, the higher end of the apex, of course. Um, you know, supply for for primary market contemporary work is is relatively elastic, and the market has grown phenomenally um, in the contemporary sphere over the last ten to twenty years. Nevertheless, there's only so much good art, so to speak, and and we try yeah. to get that at our shows. And and you, as a former museum director, I think know that better than anybody. Um, and and gallerists and artists in their studios and and, and all the institutions and collectors that support that. You know, they need to plan around that. Artists only produce so much work and where you allocate that work is is key. Um, and so you have to have the confidence in this really sort of upside down world to know what your strengths are in terms of quality and, and an absolute sort of razor focus on selectivity and, and quality above all else. Like we're not ever going to be an Amazon uh, for the art world, so to speak, in, in terms of the down market dimension of it, you know, specializing and focusing on delivering quality and, and a curated purview of what's good and great in the modern contemporary art world has to be a, a focus. As you transition into the digital realm, that's, you know, that can be tricky. So the, the, you know, the remits we've applied to the canceled shows have been to give accepted galleries and those shows access to the platform. And we entrust in them to do, you know, to do what they do in our in our in our halls in a normal basis in a substantive way online. Um, in September, we introduced, and I think there you're, you're, there's a little bit of a confusion, but it's good to know that there is that confusion in the marketplace as well, right? Two new uh, viewing rooms that were not anchored to a show, um, and so we launched a new concept uh, in the end of September. We did this week long or five day platform for. We call it OVR 2020 for artworks created in this calendar year. So it was all newly created art from January till the end of September this year. And we did a selection of 100 galleries. So we put a call out to any gallery that had done an Art Basel show in the last three years in any of our venues. And, and then we applied a specific selection criteria to their proposals so they could all propose up to six artworks created this year. For that, so that was a sort of capsule drop, so to speak, of 100 galleries, six works each created this year, and then last week, uh, we did a. I thought that was really good. I thought that was really good, and (laughs) and I saw some really great work there. So that's awesome. Yeah. What was your favorite work? Uh, A Peter Doig from Michael Berner. Yeah. 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 Um, no, but that's cool. I mean, I, I think that this, you know, so, so we tried two sides of the same coin, right? We did one drop, which was works created this year. And then the second, which was last week, which was, you know, works from the 20th century. So 1900 to 1999, again, we had applications and so galleries applied, uh, with their proposals. And then we did a selection for that. And we did the selection for each of our shows. We have a selection committee of both established senior gallerists and then some younger colleagues that look at the purview of applications. And so we have committees for Basel, Hong Kong, and Miami for the two virtual, uh, initiatives. We took a sort of pool of 
gallerists from across those committees and then added some new gallerists as well to that to bring in fresh perspectives. So it's it's really cool. But again, you know, getting NRSNs at a strategic level, doing things in a, you know, uh, in a focused way with a selection criteria behind it that we could really stand up to, to provide that sort of quality filter we felt was critical. Um, there were different, there was different uptake across them. I think 2020 was more popular. It was easier to access. The price point was a lot lower, right? Um, a lot of the material that dealers were presenting on 20C is, is tougher material. It's also more expensive. And, and even in a, in a gallery auction and art fair setting, that's a slower burn. There's a longer conversation that has to come of it. So gauging yeah. and, and sort of the expectation around that is something that we're learning to deal with and, and figuring out how to message in the virtual realm in the same way that we do in the, in the real. And that is, I think, a very astute observation. And I, I think that works that were made before, you know, this technology existed sometimes just don't translate, you know? Uh, and so certain things are, are easier to read digitally and other things are harder and, you know, some things look flat, you know, or they just, they don't communicate the energy through technology that they would in person. And, you know, maybe it's just the time in which they were created, but there was really a difference between those two experiences. Yeah. And you see different things like, you know, there's a subset of galleries, you know, eight or 10 galleries from Asia that on a proportional basis seem to do relatively well relative to others. So it's also possibly about a global network. It's about sort of freshness of material to the market. Um, You know, we published this mid-year survey with UBS uh, that that Claire McAndrew did and, and, and published it early September. And you know, there you see, um, and we ask these questions around what works for dealers in this sort of newly digital landscape. And, you know, and it's justified anecdotally, but we saw it through the surveys that she conducted. The majority of sales in this new in this new world go to existing clients. They're largely for artists that people are already familiar with. Um, so that's interesting, but it's not exclusively so. Um, and so like Francois Gabeli's, um, presentation in 2020 of this young African artist that truth be told, I, I didn't know until then did extraordinary well. And, and, and he sold all of these works in a snap. So, you know, you, you have to play it correct. You have to have the right presentational format, I think. Um, you know, we found one of the more interesting insights that we gleaned through Claire's September survey. Um, we did a, a, a survey also of high net worth clients with UBS in terms of their own collecting interest. And I think it was 57 or 58% actually said that COVID had inspired them to go deeper into their collecting, right? That, For sure. you know, that the role of culture in a way had never been more fundamentally important. And I think you can you can color her survey with all sorts of caveats based on the number of people and the fact that it's ultra high you know da 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 but that fundamental thing that that covid that this world has sort of triggered more interest in art and culture i think is actually true um especially true if you look at it in a broader lens um and so to return to the early part of this conversation just like interest in more shared experience with people you care about in a deep, in a deeper way, like people's green thumbs. Uh, like there's a lot of things that kind of come to the surface in this weird moment and culture is a huge part of that. 
So what do we do? How do we, how do we get to be together with art in a way that feels safe? Well, I mean, you know, art is an idea. It's, um, you know, I, I think there are, I mean, I live in New York, which is very fortunate. And I'm going out this afternoon. I've done like a neighborhood a week uh, in terms of my gallery and <laughs> museum visits. So I haven't been to Tribeca yet, you know, over the last mm-hmm. year or two, there's been a lot of galleries that have shifted from Chelsea down to Tribeca and I haven't done that yet. So I'm going, so I'm fortunate, right? I live in New York and, and you can go to galleries. You can make appointments. Most of them, as, as long as you fill out basic contact tracing information, some require your temperature. You can go in and see them. Museums in New York are open. Truth be told, you know, some of the best experiences I've had with art ever have come in the last few months as you've started going back into these museums because the museums are empty, empty. essentially. Like I know. Seeing Me this too. Peter Saul show, at the, Saul show at the new museum with nobody there is, is like kind of divine. Uh, going to the Met with hardly anybody there and it's basically New Yorkers is really cool. Yeah. Um, that's not a cure-all though, but I think art, you know, art is an idea, like, uh, you see it, sure, but there's so much content available online now, um, and not just at a commercial level, like, stuff that you can engage with and really go in deep. I mean, I think, you know, the galleries that have done this really well, whether it's, say, Warner or Gagosian or Hauser, some of the bigger galleries, but also some young galleries, I think, you know, what Vanessa Carlos is doing, um, I mentioned Francois Gabelli, like Esther Kim, Verit, various small fires. A lot of these younger players have learned how to sort of massage or kind of create um, their public image in the digital realm really well uh, is there. And I think a lot of what these guys are doing is they're storytelling digitally. Um, they're realizing and recognizing that telling a really deep and, and creating a 360 degree purview around an artist or an exhibition is you know, through digital means is, is really powerful. And now that people are at home, you can actually go a lot deeper. Uh, the amount of time that people spend in that way, in many ways, um, you know, and one of the, the, the extraordinary things through the viewing rooms that we've done is we've started with our VIP representative network, coordinating these, these Zoom tours. Um, and so, you know, we have a VIP representative that will lead a tour and introduce, you know, I don't know, 40, 50, 100 people at a time to different gallerists to then via Zoom speak about their works is awesome. Like we did a Zoom last week and Neil Yalter, like the Turkish feminist video artist, I, you know, was, was talking about work that she had made in the 70s on zoom to an audience of like 40 people. I mean, that was one of the coolest experiences around art I've had in a super long time. And to be able to like directly interface with this kind of legend was extraordinary. Um, So I think you just have to find your path. And I think part of the thing is that you're, you know, the things you used to do are different. You don't just pop in and go places as regularly, but I think if you're looking for content, it's there and it's there in a much more rounded way. And, and of course there are other artists that have developed work directly in response to this. Like Miriam Banani is like the two lizards videos that were these just beautiful vis- uh, videos, um, films that, um, you know, she made during early lockdown in New York, these two lizards sort of walking through Barron, New York, talking about 
um, things and everything was like drawn as a lizard, but the scenes were real and it was really deep and poetic and they were all distributed on Instagram, you know, as these two to three minute snapshots. I don't know if you've seen these, but they're just amazing. I haven't, but we'll put that link in the show notes. Yeah, put put the link in the show notes. I mean, they're the I, I think that's some of the, the great work that's been created, the hands down this year. And it's using technology, responding to a moment through aesthetic and visual form, like it's 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 perfect. Awesome. What's gonna be in Miami? Is there going to yeah. be something physical? Yeah. So that's, that's a good question. So what else have we learned? So we've learned also that, you know, that the digital needs, you know, something else to supplement it, or at least a contextual framing. And I think what will be different for Art Basel Miami Beach online viewing room, I mean, the, 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 the digital offering on the one hand will be identical uh, or, or basically the same, i.e. we're offering to gallerists um, the ability to come in and, and show uh, or create a digital show, but we're also going to create an IRL extension of that into Miami itself. Uh, the, you know, what we uncovered, you know, really over the summer and then really after the cancellation of the show in early September is that all the local museums are all planning in any case to leverage the existence of Miami art week, the first week of December to, to sort of rally their own constituents. Many of them are planning, um, their own, uh, exhibitions, uh, socially distanced events, et cetera. So we're going to create a Miami sort of spotlight as well within that. So our campaign will involve support and promotion around the online viewing room, but in parallel to that, um, a, a focused look, certainly for those that are in South Florida of what's happening, um, in the greater Miami area. And so there'll be, um, museum listings, event listings, um, there are, you know, obviously several galleries, you know, Fred Stitzer, uh, David Castillo, Central Fine, that are great Miami galleries that do Art Basel. They'll be doing their shows. And then um, Craig Robbins, who's uh, uh, the founder of, of the Design District and Design Miami is a great art design collector as well, is inviting uh, galleries as well, both art and design galleries, into uh, empty store spaces in the Design District to do pop-ups. Um, so there'll be this sort of pop-up element as well, um, that, that Craig is steering, which I think is super cool. Uh, and I think he's, he's speaking to galleries about, you know, not just for a week long pop-up, but really like either for the month of December or for longer. Um, and then design Miami as well is going to be, um, uh, uh, in the design district, um, uh, in the Moore building, which was sort of their original home. And so they're doing sort of a tripartite. There'll be some sponsor activations, but there'll be some small booths as well that that galleries they work with will be activating. Then there'll be a selling show. So there'll be activity. And I think it's, it's something, right? Uh, and I think, yeah. you know, we're looking at it really as a sort of uh, as a, as a, as a framework concept that scoped both through like what, what's happening digitally and clearly for us and for our global network of galleries, the online viewing room is key, but there's this connectivity to Miami that I think was, was a little bit absent actually, when we did the online viewing rooms for, um, Hong Kong and Basel, they didn't really have a rootedness in place. And I think we felt like that is actually really important because to get to your early point about the calendar, you know, 
our industry follows a calendar. And the more I think we felt in December that we could anchor this to Miami, the more we can help create a better sort of marketing context for getting people to pay attention to and take action around um, the online viewing room experience. And, and hopefully also for those that are in South Florida, of, of which I presume there will be many people, whether it's snowboard birds or others from within the community to really get out and, and try to, to see things again. Something that I keep coming back to, and I've mentioned a couple of times, and I don't know that anyone's really kind of picked up on it, but you, you just referenced, so we've been talking about the calendar, but we've been talking also about like the specificity of place. And part of what's great about the art calendar is, you know, going and seeing people that you know and love and, you know, have, have had relationships with for years, but in these different places, which are endemic to the place, like it's great to be on a Vaporetto you know, with your friends in Venice, or, you know, it's great to take a, you know, a pre-fair um, meeting, which is like a beach walk, you know, um, or to, you know, for people that, you know, eat meat, like to have, you know, the, the sausages, right, um, in Basel. So, you know, are there ways to, um, to give some of those kind of sensual, experiences that are like really important you know around the art experience to people even if they can't get there so you know are are there elements that can be you know shared with people even though you're maybe in the comfort or safety of your own home but you're having that same experience so can it be evoked through a smell or something tactile or you know and i'm not talking about something gimmicky and you know it and I'm also not trying to be nostalgic, um, but is there some kind of, you know, tactile way to be evocative, um, at least temporarily? Yeah, I mean, that's a deep and phenomenal question that I don't have a perfect answer to, but we have thought a lot about that. I've thought a lot about this in any case, going back, you know, even to, to pre-art Basel moments. And I, I think it's, I think we're going to see a lot more creative thinking around this, both, you know, uh, in our business and industry and, and well beyond that as well. Certainly the longer that, you know, kind of lockdown and travel uh, limitations persist, because I think that this is, you know, this is key. And it's also why, you know, Art Basel as a platform is such a phenomenally interesting business, because we're not, you know, on the one hand, you know, you're dealing with you know, this kind of cliched purview of the world that's dealing with like very expensive things and incredibly wealthy people. And there's a transactional element to that. And that's all true. But we're also a platform for something that's far more sort of broad, broad reaching and, and, and powerful than that in many ways. Like we do outreach to these local communities. Uh, we're a bridge, not just for commercial actors, but for, you know, people seeking cultural outlets. Um, success at our shows is not just commercially mediated you know success can be an upcoming exhibition at the aspen art museum as a result of a conversation that that was triggered at the fair an artist gets you know one of the things we're most proud of is is gallerists that meet at the show and all of a sudden you have a gallerist from berlin and, and they befriend a gallerist in los angeles who befriends a gallerist in Seoul, and all of a sudden they're all sharing the same artist. And over the course of the next 18 months, that artist goes on this fascinating journey. 
And so there's a lot of soft outcomes as well. And sort of as we pipe and extend what we do into this digital realm, I think it's also, again, like there's this focus on kind of quality as king, but then also how do we, how do we trigger these other softer variables? Um, again, like collectors come and a benefit from a collector coming to an Art Basel show is not just transactional, though clearly, again, for many, that's key, but it's, there's a learning experience. There's a cultural journey, like to go to Basel, you, you go to the Beiler, you go to the Kunstmuseum, you go to the Kunsthalle, there's extraordinary exhibitions, uh, that are relevant in many ways in, in and of themselves to go, but you also meet new people. Um, you meet new people in the halls, you meet new gallerists, you meet artists, but you meet other like-minded sort of cultural explorers, so to speak, and exactly. you build and kind of constitute this extraordinary, powerful, and quite intoxicating global network of, of people from Colorado to Beijing to Sao Paulo to Dubai, you know, to Paris. Uh, and, and that is really um, what makes our world unique. I mean, I have these arguments or conversations with my dad, who's a dentist, uh, he'll get a kick out of me referencing this. And he, he, when I was doing my PhD, like the sort of impenetrable art speak was something that he always had a tough time with, understandably, by the way. Um, and I've, I've walked away from that, but really what we learn as sort of troopers in this world is how to speak this, uh, this language of art. And it's, a it's a global language. And I think more than anything, we've just become fluent in this language. And it's this amazingly powerful connective tool that, you know, jumps across boundaries and borders and brings us together with other people that on the surface, you might not have a lot in common with, but you kind of really create these connections. And for better or worse, art fairs and art Basel sort of sitting on top of that pyramid have become, you know, just incredibly vital pathways to creating and spreading that language and bringing people together. And I think you have to have a, have a, have your eyes on that as well as you build and extend your business into this newly digital realm and into whatever lies on the other side of a post COVID rainbow. Um, and I think along the way, we will be, we will become much more intelligent with respect to how we extract experiences and sensibilities of place and in environments um, in, in much more deeply meaningful ways than we're currently seeing. God, I hope so. I mean, you know, necessity, you know, breeds creativity and innovation. And I, I've seen some whiffs of that, uh, but not honestly as quickly or as um, impressively yet as as I would hope. And, you know, your your reference to kind of the difference, even for your family between the spring and the fall, I think is is really apt um, and, and rings true for, for me. And I, I'm sure a lot of people too, where, you know, it was just so, it was like a, somehow it, it's like being at the beach and turning around for a second and having like a big wave come when you weren't expecting. And you're, so you're like on the ground and you're like, you know, sputtering with like the ocean water. Um, but, you know, you don't drown. You just like figure out how to like get up and basically turn around. You know, like that's what you yell to your kids, like, right, when they get overwhelmed by, by a wave, like stand up and turn around. And then at least you can see what's coming, right? So it's still coming. Um, but 
you know, now I think we can be a little more creative, a little more proactive. And, you know, through the summer, of course, we've experimented and tried different things. Um, so yeah, I'm the internal the, optimist. Yeah. And, and there's many unknowns. I mean, you know, on the one hand, already heading into this moment, you know, there were a lot of people that were sort of totally overwhelmed and burnt out on the event-driven staccato of our industry, right? And that's probably right. one of the most gripping and fundamentally pervasive elements of what happened over the last 10 to 20 years, really since the outset of Art Basel Miami Beach, was the extent to which the art world followed this very regularized event-driven um, pattern that in the process yielded so many other events. And, and it just kind of, you know, more and more, more was more. And so on the one hand, you have a lot of people that are, you know, sort of quietly enjoying the pause. On the other hand, <laughs> I've never had more people, uh, you know, who, who are all the biggest complainers that were sort of sick of art fairs and da, 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 that are just begging for it to kick back off again. Cause they've <laughs> also come to realize how important these things are. I mean, you, you see it in the auctions also, right? Like, you need a call to action. Um, otherwise, things sit and, and sort of gestate. Uh, and so, you know, we don't know fully as a business exactly what the art fair landscape looks on the other side of this. And there's a few ways it can go. On the one hand, surely um, there might be an outcome in which our industry has learned to sort of coexist without some of this and develops other means of engaging clients and showing great art, working with their artists and building communities that are less reliant on fairs. But there's absolutely an argument of very compelling nature that people will come out of this even stronger, that the fair business will come out even stronger because of a dependency that's been underlined with respect to how, you know, lacking you know, this commercial activity was without it. Um, and so, you know, we as a business now are beginning to build or, or not even just beginning. I mean, we're far along in our planning around what that looks like as we start seeing the signals and triggers for what those different outcomes might be as we head into next year and where we want to place our marbles depending on some of those outcomes, so to speak. Um, and those are unknowns, uh, but, you know, but I think that, you know, we'll get through this, but I, I think that there will fundamentally, and this gets back to like some of this positive intelligence conversation from the outset, like you've got to, you know, if you see the world as, as or the, the, the glass is half full, like that becomes your reality. If you see it, or sorry, as half empty, that becomes your reality and you spiral negatively downwards. If you think that there are positive green shoots that becomes your reality. And then you just create that reality. Um, and, you know, I think we're, we're well on that track despite it all. And I, you know, we just fundamentally believe in the power of art and culture and, and art will get out there. And, you know, we intend to be part of that journey. I think the long arc of time is really important as well. It's something that I've been thinking about and we started off with our our conversation about this idea of uncertainty and some of the uncertainty is just patience you know i mean the the first auctions that we saw i mean they were great a ton of art was sold for a lot of money and and people thought okay great people don't need to be in the room it can be streamlined it can be you know streamed and 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 then you know we just saw this last round of auctions um and they're flat, you know, um, energetically. So 
maybe there was novelty originally, and then there's, you know, but we don't know exactly yet what any of these things are or what they mean. And, and some of it, it's just, uh, yeah, patience, right? And letting things kind of unfold and, and letting things tell their own story um, with guidance, you know, fr- from us too, and, and intention and hope. Um, and direction, you know, but but there are things, uh, you know, that just take a little time. Yeah, totally. Um, and you have to, again, be able to sort of see through that and believe that you will get to the other side because you will. <laughs> uh, and then it's just about the time scale, right? Uh, and how that works. And, the, you know, those are factors we can't totally control, certainly in our industry. But I mean, look at museums right now too. I mean, uh, I mean, like look at restaurants. Uh, yeah. So many different. I mean, the the crisis has been quite indiscriminate. Like in the legal profession, there are lawyers that have never been busy, and there are other lawyers with specialization in certain areas that are out of jobs. You know, and so this is it's a you know it's a time for rethinking fundamentals, and then also really getting to the essence of what drives you as a person, and then what drives your business as a business. What kind of things do you dream of? <laughs> I don't know, Heidi. <laughs> um, I do know this. I, you know, uh, whatever my future entails will be in this world. Like I am a being of this world. Uh, I interact with a lot of other business leaders and, you know, whether they're personal friends or people you've met along the way. And there's, there are certain people that are sort of industry or or content agnostic. They just don't really care. They want to make a business and build a business and they're very entrepreneurial. And they're just like, you go in low, you sell high and you go on to the next thing. Like, that's great. That's, that's not me. And actually that's one thing I've recognized very clearly over the course of COVID as we've had more time and you really think about what, you know, what, what, what lies ahead, right? Like whatever I do will be in this world and will be in the service of like bringing these communities together, supporting artists, supporting, you know, hopefully supporting gallerists uh, because, you know, I believe in that as, you know, I believe in the importance of culture in that realm. Um, you know, but I think it's also something that will become more multidisciplinary. You know, I think you'll see a lot of these boundaries blur, certainly in our industry, you know, there's already that blurring of boundaries between different staked out positions with respect to say what, what gallerists do, what institutions do. So I think we're, you know, we'll, we'll see a, you know, in 20, 30 years, we'll see a newly reshaped world that will still service the same goals in many ways about supporting great art and getting art out into the world but the means in which that will happen i think will shift um you know and i I, what do i dream about i dream about like how you can be part of that and leave a real interesting kind of legacy and feel like you're doing something in the service of 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 what you love which is you know which is this um but it's but it's not Truth be told, it's not a lot more clear than that either. Um, and I think, you know, I, I definitely know that, you know, that where I am now, certainly with Art Basel, that Art Basel can continue to play, you know, an arguably even more meaningful role in that journey in the future than it has in the past. Like, uh, you know, and, and you could certainly argue that what we've done up till now is 
is only a precursor to a lot more that that can come from that. Um, but in a much more interesting and kind of deep way too. Um, and so it's, yeah. How did you, two, two other questions and answer them in whichever order you want, you know, why do you love art and how did you find your way to art? Um, well, I have a funny relationship with art. I mean, uh, I found my way to art through music and film, which I was always much more comfortable with as a kid. I never really, even today, like, you know, there, there's a lot of art escapes me. Um, but I feel very comfortable in the land of music, for example, certainly sort of indie and, and, and that kind of stuff. So I, I found my way to art really as a sort of curiosity. Uh, I, I was, I was pursuing a career more in like the economics finance realm, but I was always interested in how people invested in art, how art, but also other alternative asset classes. Like I was really interested in wine at a time, uh, real estate, stuff like this performed as a financial asset. So I ended up going on this kind of journey ultimately to the court hold in London, writing a PhD that became a book. And that became a real thing as that's progressed. I've become less interested you know, in the, in the sort of like nuts and bolts of how to make money buying and selling art, which truth be told is a precarious, you know, it can be a precarious thing and you have to really control a lot of factors to make it successful, you know, and, and there's a re reason that, you know, some of the, the great gallerists really, they are, they control their whole reality so thoroughly and so well from beginning to end that, you know, that they already do a lot of that. But I was, you know, very interested in that journey at the outset. Um, and I just believe, you know, that art can be transformative, that you can learn this language, that the power of connectivity is real. I also firmly believe that a lot of art is crap. Uh, and most of what we see is not that interesting. And I have these real high and low moments where you get very down on it. You kind of go, you know, you go and you see things or you read about things and you're just like, that's, that, that is just bogus. And it is so thin <laughs> and it doesn't hold at all. And but every time, every time you go to the depths of that and you've, you've, you've gone to see things and you just don't believe, you'll see something else that hooks you straight back in that like totally moves you. And it happens always. And you never know what it's going to be if it's some new concept or project or some extraordinary object that you saw and that, that gets you going again. Um, I didn't quite know that I had this in me until I, I was at the University of Virginia doing my undergrad degree and I had applied to go to the UK to, to do um, the master's program, which turned into my PhD. And the summer in between um, was really what, that was my transformational moment uh, as a sort of like, you know, when I recognized that this was for me and I, I grew up in Princeton um, uh, and Kurt Varnado, who was the famous curator from MoMA, um, uh, stepped down from MoMA and, and he took this post at the Institute for Advanced Study uh, in Princeton. Um, and, and Kirk had, was battling cancer at the time and stepped back and he uh, was at the Institute. And I wrote to him cold. I had absolutely no relationship with the guy at all. And I wrote to him and I sent him this letter and I said, hey, like I happen to live here and I'm going to do this master's thing at the court hold. And like, if you were around to meet, like I'd love to meet with you. And he invited me to lunch and he ended up giving me a job, um, like as his research assistant for the summer. 
to prepare his Mellon lectures, which are the National Gallery in DC, which he was giving a sort of year from them. Uh, and I spent every day with him over the course of this summer between, you know, sort of my, my pre-life, like when I wasn't in the art world and the beginning of this new journey and into the art world the following autumn. And it was that experience of being around this guy for like a summer that was really like, that's what, that's what really sealed it. And Kirk, um, uh, was, I think one of the, he's known as, as one of the great sort of orators, uh, on art, like his, he's just has this extraordinary command of the language and how he spoke so passionately about things and just being in his orbit. And I didn't have any clue what he was talking about at all. Like I had no idea. Um, uh, but you knew that it was important and that there was meaning to it and that this was something that was like cool. And it kind of existed in this other realm. And I think that experience was what sealed like a career in this space for me. And I'm still trying to figure out, you know, a lot of the, in, you know, a lot of the parts, but this importance of like mission and that there's some, something important that you need to kind of protect and preserve around like the creative arc of uh, substantively interesting artists, I think is super important. Um, and that's, that was an experience for me that was really transformative and, and very special. And, um, you know, we kept in touch over the course of the next year and I helped him a little bit and then he delivered these lectures. Uh, I guess it was like in the spring and, and he passed away that summer and, you know, it's just really like really very moving experience. Such a good answer and another story that I didn't know. So thank you. Thank you for telling it. <laughs> I always love our conversations. Um, we met at a YPO event in Miami before you were a YPOer, and at that conference, um, the person who did the kickoff said, "Make sure over these three days in Miami that you meet someone that changes your life." And um, you know, it's kind of unlike the night of the last day. Um, I was, was seated next to you and we started talking and you, know, <laughs> you I met, you know, another mutual friend of ours, Audrey Kinsman. And, and I'm certain between those two relationships, it did change my life forever. So thank you for yeah, doing that's that. So and cool. <laughs> thanks for talking with me today too. No, it's been amazing. And, you know, these are these funny things. And I, I didn't even know what YPO was, truth be told, at the time when I did that. I think that the Dela Cruzes hosted this thing and were very close to Carlo and, and Rosa. And, and, you know, it's just like, sometimes you just got to go with the flow, you know. Um, pretty much and, every time. Uh, <laughs> pretty much every time. So, uh, but no, th I mean, that was, this is great. And, and, you know, this has been super fun conversation. Great. We will continue. Absolutely. Thanks for the rest of your day. Okay. You too. All right. See ya. Conversations about art is part of HiZ.art, a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was produced by Simonilla. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every Tuesday with new episodes. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>